0: Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, i listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Once Upon a Wasteland.
1: Once upon a time, 27 years after the bombs fell, there were two people, a vault dweller and a California girl. They met... And sparks flew. That's when things got interesting. This is their story.
0: Created by Brad Williams, Once Upon a Wasteland is a sci fi love story set in the world of the video game franchise, Fallout, taking place in a post apocalypse West Virginia. The story is about Odessa Valdez, a member of a military organization called the Brotherhood of Steel, and Elizabeth Kirby, a freelance intelligence operative who meet in the irradiated wasteland, fall in love, and investigate a mystery that threatens those that live in the area. Williams combines his original material with existing Fallout lore using the permissive fan content license that Bethesda Softworks, Fallout's creator, grants. The first episode, titled Such Perfect Identity of Interests, has Odessa and Elizabeth meet while scavenging technology and coming under attack by vicious super mutants. I spoke to Brad remotely from his home in North Carolina. Tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist and a creator.
2: Well, I started as a screenwriter back in the early 90s. I had done a little bit of that and a little bit of TV work when I was an undergrad at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. There were some friends and some peers of mine that, that did that. So I, I thought that it looked like fun and I did it. It seemed like I had a little bit of acumen for it. So I kicked around the idea, I guess, of maybe trying to turn that into a career. So I did some freelance stuff here and there, some spec stuff, that kind of thing. Nothing ever really came of it. And mm-hmm. I put down the pen or I, I, I put down the keyboard for about, about 25 years wow. and didn't really write anything. Yeah. I, I've never been a person who wrote, you know, short stories, novels, that kind of thing. It's not really my preferred style. I'm not great at writing that narration and exposition in that way. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of didn't write anything for a long time. I I, I had ideas. I, you know, sort of fleshed out outlines and that kind of thing. But in terms of actually getting anything concrete down on paper or down on the screen, I kind of put that part of me away for quite a while.
0: Were you an artist type
2: when you were a kid? No, not, not, not really. I guess what you could say is I was always a ham. (laughs) So I did. And I wasn't, I wasn't a theater kid or anything like that. I did TV when I was an undergrad, you know, university TV. I worked on a sitcom, university union television sitcom as a writer. And I did a a guest spot as a wrestling announcer on that. So that kind of thing is, is the kind of thing that I did. And then I did eventually get into theater in the late nineties and did some of that, you know, did some musicals and, and that kind of thing. What drew you towards writing? I think that just about everybody has a story to tell mm-hmm. and it comes down to whether your motivation, your desire to tell that story can overcome the inertia that I think everybody feels. One thing that in interacting with other creators in the the audio drama space is that most of them start out just writing for themselves in kind of a short story, novel kind of a format and really just writing for the pure enjoyment of writing, which is something honestly that I envy. I I wish I could do that, but I really can't. I I think there's there's too much of me and my process and what I want to get out of writing and creating where I kind of need to know that people are consuming it and are enjoying it and are moved by it and those kinds of things. That part of it is really what I guess, drives my personal investment. I want to move people. The one thing that has always stuck with me, Nicholas Meyer, who was the guy who basically saved Star Trek, who did Star yeah. Trek Two and, and did Star Trek Six. one thing that he said has stuck with me for a long time. And he was talking about, the scene where Spock died, spoiler alert, in Star Trek yeah. 2.
0: <laughs> it's been how many years? 40, it's,
2: it's been 40 years. So if you haven't seen it by now or if you hadn't heard about it, then I don't know what to you say. Just,
0: but. You just made me feel old. All right. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but what he said, and, and I, I love the way he phrased this because he was talking about the reactions of the crew as they were filming that scene. He was, like grown men wept
0: yeah. as
2: the scene was going on. And what he said was, as a screenwriter, it's not my job to make me cry. It's my job to make you cry. Mm-hmm. So that, I guess, kind of also informed the way I write. Like I can't necessarily just write in ways that affect me or that speak yeah. to my personal experiences. I guess I want to speak to maybe more universal experiences and also things that may mean something to individual people who aren't me. And and there's a lot of me in what I write. I don't mean to imply that it's that there's not, but I think the things that I write speak more to wanting to make people experience that. I feel things intensely. I'm a pretty emotional person and I want people to experience that. And if I can do that with something that I've created, then I feel like I've done my job.
0: This is actually an interesting question that I've thought about, and I'm not taking away from anyone's personal experience, but I always wonder, can you create art if there is no audience? If you create something, a painting, a poem, a story, a music, but you're the only one that ever experiences it, is that truly art? I know some people would certainly say, yes, it is. But it does make me wonder about the artistic process. If art is a transmission of meaning or emotion or idea, then there has to be something transmitted to someone. I don't know what the answer to that question is. I do respond to that because I kind of feel the same way. I definitely want the art that I create to have an impact on someone other than myself.
2: I mean, honestly, it's created a little bit of angst for me because sometimes it, it makes me feel a little bit like when I say, if I do this show, if I do Once Upon a Wasteland and nobody listens to it, well, then I feel like I've failed mm. because no matter what I get out of it, no matter what I got out of writing it and creating it, if I didn't move people, then it rings hollow to me. I need that. I need that reinforcement yeah. and I need that understanding that people have experienced the thing or things that that I set out to make them experience.
0: You said you've set down your writing for how many years? <laughs> 20, 30 years or something? A yeah, very long say? time. <laughs> very yeah, long about, time. About,
2: about, about 25 years, I think. So
0: what changed? What brought you back to writing and to audio drama?
2: I really entertained no idea of wanting to get back into voice acting. And I, I should say I did voice acting narration for a few years as well. You know, freelance stuff, you know, radio commercials. I narrated the help system for a software program, that, that, that kind of thing. I guess I've always kind of harbored a desire to get back into some sort of performance based artistic expression. So, in the Reddit group for Fallout 76, the Bethesda online video game, the most recent installment in the Fallout franchise, a person who was in the beginning phases of doing their own Fallout based audio drama, I think he'd released maybe three or four episodes by this point, had said, Hey, I have a casting call. I need voice actors to do roles in this show. So I auditioned for the role. I, I got the role that I auditioned for, which was the role of modus, which is an artificial intelligence that exists within the game. The show is called The Modus Files. It's really a fabulous show. It's 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 a great show. It's still going strong. The person who is behind creating it, Lawrence McNamara is a, a fabulous writer. So that's a a roundabout way of saying joining up with the cast of The Modus Files kind of started that ball rolling. Seeing what Lawrence was able to do with his show and his way of telling a story and the fact that he's he's a regular guy, that made me think, well, you know, maybe this is something that I could do. One of the things about Fallout 76 is it's like any Fallout game. It's very much a role-playing game. So you have your character that you play. Lawrence and I started to discuss little scenes and little backstories involving my original character. And those got a little bit longer and a little bit more detailed. And he was incredibly encouraging, just saying, hey, this is this is really good. You should keep working on this and, and giving suggestions and feedback and just some really great back and forth until it got to the point where he was basically saying, you know, you could make your own show. That's, that's really how it all started. And, and th- th- there is no Once Upon a Wasteland without Lawrence and the modus files
0: full disclosure i'm a fallout fan Mm -hmm. i have played uh, fallout 3 and 4 and new vegas Uh, i have not played 76 but i am familiar with the world i'm curious as to why you wanted to write a story set in this universe especially because it belongs to a company belongs to bethesda softworks
2: one of the things that i like about Well built worlds is all the possibilities that you have in terms of the stories that you can tell and who you can tell those stories about. Something that that Fallout has in common with, say, Star Trek and Star Wars in terms of the scope and the type of world that they built is that it really lends itself to telling a wide variety of different stories. And because I don't want to sound like I'm speaking negatively about genre pieces, but that's not the kind of story I think that I would be good at telling. And also, it's not really the kind of story that I'm interested in telling. And when it's something like this that's purely an expense and not something that I'm ever going to make money from, that part of it becomes more important. It has to be something that I'm invested in and that I really want to do. And I think Fallout really lends itself to telling pretty much any kind of story that you want to tell.
0: For those who are listening that maybe are not familiar with the Fallout franchise, the Fallout games are set in a post-nuclear apocalypse america but it's also sort of an alternate timeline where technology kind of got stuck in the 1950s and in terms of style there's like vacuum tubes and big tvs and all this kind of stuff but it also is a satire in many ways of american culture at the same time sometimes dealing with very dark and violent themes it's a very ripe science fiction universe. I think you're right. I think there's a lot of levels that you can play with there from some darker elements to satire, to comedy even. Now, Once Upon a Wasteland, you build that as a romance as well. I mean, there's an adventure element, but there's definitely a romance at the heart of it. Do you have any experience writing romantic
2: stories? I thought you were going to say, do you have any experience with romance?
0: <laughs> Why, yes, I do.
2: I I do a little bit. In fact, one of the things that always been a through line in other things that I've written is romance, whether it's romantic subtext or as a prominent part of the plot, because I think that's something that that speaks universally to a lot of people. And it's also something that I just when I watch something, I kind of look for that sort of thing. I was a shipper before shipping had its own (laughs) its own term. Tell me what Once Upon a Wasteland is in your own words. Once Upon a Wasteland is, at its core, a story about people. And I know that's a really broad statement, but the overall theme is that people are people. No matter who those people are, no matter what situations those people find themselves in, people are always people. Another very strong theme in it is love is love, and love can take many different forms. One of the things that I've always appreciated about the Fallout games is their treatment of LGBTQ plus content and issues. I really enjoyed the fact that same-sex relationships are treated exactly the same as opposite sex relationships are within the context of the game. So that was something that set a light bulb off in my brain thought, okay, this is the kind of canvas that I can use to tell a multitude of different romantic stories without having to worry about the particular configurations of the partners in those stories. The other thing is, no matter how bad things get, no matter how apocalyptic the post-apocalypse is in a particular universe, people are going to continue to fall in love, no matter what happens to be going on in in the wider world. Love always finds a way. So, what's she like?
1: You've been hanging around with my father too long. You can read me like a book, and I don't like it. (laughs) So? She's... Great, but God, I was such a dork. I've done this, what, dozens of times now? Go in, turn on the charm, get what I need, get out. Maybe get a new long-term intel source out of the deal if things work out just so.
0: Which they always do.
1: Well, almost always. But this was different.
2: Do listeners need to
0: be familiar with the Fallout universe in order to appreciate the story?
2: Well that that was actually a very big focus point of mine. I wanted to make sure that this was a story that was accessible to people. The model that I used was The Mandalorian. So The Mandalorian makes a lot of references to all kinds of different Star Wars materials, not just the movies, but to TV shows, you know, the cartoons, books, mm-hmm. all these different pieces of material. Now, I consider myself a Star Wars fan, but before The Mandalorian I had not watched anything other than the movies. That was it. I didn't, I never read an an extended universe novel. I didn't watch any of the cartoons. I didn't watch, you know, clone wars or star Wars rebels, even though I saw that there were references to things contained in those pieces of media, not knowing about them and not understanding them did not in any way, take away from my enjoyment of the material that made me think, okay, I can do that with fallout. Another thing that I, that I think is important is trust your audience. Your audience is smart. They're going to get it as long as you do a good enough job of <laughs> of, uh, of building the world. So I wanted to build the world myself enough so that people would have that baseline so they could understand things based on context clues. Like you may never have played a Fallout game before, but through context clues, you will understand what a super mutant is mm-hmm. or who the Brotherhood of Steel are based on how they're presented in the game. It, it was very important to me to make this not something that you had to be a big fan of Fallout franchise or even somebody who had who had ever played any of the games I wanted that to not be a barrier of entry and I wanted it to be the kind of story that spoke to people whether they were fallout fans or not and that's the flip side of it you also can't make it so untethered from the world that somebody who is a fallout fan is going to listen to it and go well this this has nothing to do with fallout
0: you talked about shipping and you talked about you know writing within an existing ip
2: would you call this fan fiction I have thought about that, and I guess you you would kind of have to. I mean, I am a fan, and it's since it's based on that existing IP. I, I think, at the very least, in the most literal definition of it, sure. And I know that there can be a negative connotation around the term fan fiction, right? That it's lesser or something that's not as worthy of attention. But I tend to disagree with that. I think fan fiction like any other piece of fiction, can be good and it can be bad. It's all about execution.
0: You could have chosen to make an entirely new world on your own, mm-hmm. maybe some alternate post-apocalyptic setting. Why didn't you create a whole universe whole cloth yourself?
2: Well, I think there were a few reasons for that. I think part of it was my entry point, as mm-hmm. I mentioned before talking with Lawrence about it and how the original story was was based around my original character from the game and and that character's backstory. And also, I should say, Within the game, there is the other lead character in my story is not an original character. It's a character from within the game. Part of what actually turned this into a romance, I I wouldn't call myself a romance writer. I'm really a comedy writer. But within the game, your character does not have the ability to quote unquote romance that character. You're referring to Odessa.
0: Right. Yes, yes. Who's, and, in, who's in the game. And, right. And, and Elizabeth is your
2: original creation. Is that that's, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. So, okay. it, and Odessa is, is very well loved by the Fallout community. And people had lamented, well, I can't romance Odessa Valdez. I sure wish I could. And then I thought, well, what if you could? So that that was really maybe the earliest nugget of where this story came from. And another aspect of this that really can't be overlooked is Bethesda is really great about allowing people to create things based upon their IP. So you can't go out there and make millions of dollars doing it. But as long as you're not doing anything that would harshly infringe on their trademarks and their copyrights, they're pretty much OK with it. And that's another thing that I think helps creators use this as a as a universe to work in.
0: So you picked Odessa as one of the characters there, and and you talked about how the community wanted to romance her, but she's not a romance option in the game. Mm -hmm. Is that why you have the dialogue in your episode about how everyone wants to flirt with her?
2: Yes. (laughs) Okay. So there's the part in the first episode where Elizabeth and Odessa were talking, and Elizabeth says, the thing that I heard most about you is how everybody in the wasteland keeps trying to pick you up and fails. So that was a, you know, that was kind of a cheeky shout out. And again, I think that's one of those things where I think on its own, it's funny. And it establishes that Odessa is someone who is attractive and desirable and also sort of unattainable. Yeah. But if you know the game, then you get that other thing added on top. It was like, haha, you can't romance her in the game. So, um, Scribe Valdez, I, uh, can I call you Odessa?
3: Scribe Valdez will be fine.
0: <laughs> of course, right. Hey, Scrap Valdez. Uh, crazy idea. I was wondering if maybe you, um, maybe wanted to go, you know, food? Uh, dinner, I mean, uh, right, dinner. Not food. How can somebody go to food? There's also lunch. If you like lunch, food's better. Uh, or maybe breakfast, too. There are foods, uh, different types there.
3: Mr. Douglas.
0: Uh, Kevin. Please, uh, call me Kevin.
3: Mr. Douglas, I'm flattered. I really am. But I have to decline. It's important that we keep our relationship professional.
2: We have a relationship?
3: Thank you again for the technical data. Please feel free to drop it off at Camp Venture whenever you happen to find any in the future.
2: Vitriol, who plays Odessa, that scene was where I knew I had the right person. I even told her, I said, you murdered him with that line. (laughs) Just, just, she had a little sigh and like, (sighs) because she, you know, she'd obviously had to do this dozens of times before. And uh, the way she delivered it was, was just, it was beautiful.
0: Let's talk about that first episode. We meet the Brotherhood of Steel and the Brotherhood of Steel is one of the major organizations in the post-apocalypse who are a military group that are attempting to find and protect and secure technology. Leftover from before the war They're out in the fields and they're Breaking into this research facility They get pinned down by some super mutants And in comes Elizabeth Kirby Who is the other Protagonist of the story Who is there also To get some information but she's kind of Undercover, she's Pretending that she just Happened to be there and she kind of sweeps in And saves the day
1: Die Gotta go. I hear that. That should hold them for a while. Well, as long as they don't
3: figure out how to use that terminal. I grabbed the hollow tape. We're good. Thank you, by the way. Oh, um, Scribe Odessa Valdez, Brotherhood
1: of Steel. Elizabeth Kirby. Uh. The- Unaffiliated? It's a pleasure to finally meet you in the flesh, Scribe Valdez. I've heard a lot about you. You have? Valdez, this is not the... Look, let's cut the chit-chat, okay? What are you doing here, civilian? Other than interfering with an official Brotherhood operation, that is. I literally just said my name, Knight Mood Killer. And my interference saved your asses.
0: So there is some adventure. There is an ongoing story that unspools throughout the season having to do with a larger threat, but you definitely weave in the romance pretty quick. The two of them start flirting right away. Mm -hmm. We learn later that Elizabeth is kind of doing it disingenuously at first. like This is how she gets confidence in people, but she also then admits later on that she actually was... Taken aback by how pretty Odessa is. Tell me a little bit about how you began this story and what you were attempting to accomplish here in this first
2: episode. I wanted to make sure that I didn't scare people off. Like right now, the way that I have the title listed is Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout story. Mm. But when I originally released it, it was Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout 76 love story. Mm. I think that the sort of stereotypical wider video game audience isn't necessarily interested in a romance story. So I wanted to make sure that as we entered the story, I established this wasn't going to just be a schmoopy romance story. I wanted to make sure that people understood that there was going to be adventure. There was going to be a mystery. There were going to be references to Fallout lore. I am a total sucker for joining a story in Medias Res. Mm -hmm. When we open that scene and the Brotherhood of Steel is already in the middle of that battle, there's no setup for that. I love that as a narrative device. Absolutely love it. I think with this first episode, and if you've done TV work, you you kind of understand this distinction. I wanted to write it like a pilot, something that is intended to entice a studio executive or a producer or production house, that this is a story that's worth shooting as a pilot. You're not trying to sell it to a studio. You're trying to sell it to an audience. And you want to make sure that you put enough in there that makes them want to come back for more. You're a straight guy, is mm-hmm. that correct? That yeah. is correct.
0: Yeah. I guess I'm curious as to why you wanted this story to be about two women, if that's not your experience, right?
2: Well, I I will say I did draw upon the experiences of a lot of friends who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. In fact, mm-hmm. that central romance, one of my my good friends from my college days and her wife, a lot of the dynamics were were kind of based on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But I'll say I kind of backed into this being a queer love story i didn't set out to make a queer love story i set out to make a love story Mm -hmm. and it so happened that this character that became the impetus for the romance part of the story was a woman and also the original character that i played in the game was also a woman so it turned into a love story between two women and that's just two people falling in love it's it's normal it's no different than me falling in love with a woman. Like I said earlier, love is love. So in terms of how I write a romance, the broadest strokes of it, there's not really any difference. If my original character was male, the the story would have played out similarly.
0: What do you struggle with?
2: Confidence. That's probably the biggest thing. And Lawrence, again, I, I know I keep talking about him, but Lawrence is the guy who kept me going throughout this process. There, There were some pretty rough times. I guess- intellectually, you know, and people tell you, Hey, when you start a show, whether it's a discussion podcast or whether it's an audio drama, not a lot of people are necessarily going to listen to it at the beginning. You know, you may have 10 downloads a day. So I knew that going in, but it still led to a lot of self doubt. Yeah. And I mean, there's no other way to put this. I mean, I was a failure as a screenwriter. There's, I mean, it's, it's just, that's not navel gazing. That's just, that's just a fact. You can have that insecurity really creep in as you've released, say, two or three episodes and the numbers are getting better, but your your curve isn't that great. And you're thinking, OK, well, do people care? Am I doing this? OK, am I an OK writer? And Lawrence was the guy who said, listen, man, the quality is there. Just give it time. And he would know Pete already gone through it and he understood. But I'm not proud of this, but I I, I required a lot of care and feeding throughout <laughs> this process. And and I mean, there were times I was a I was a bad friend. But, but he really, he really propped me up and, and kept me going. And, and I guess helped instill the confidence that I was creating something that was good. And the, uh, listenership and feedback and appreciation, I guess would naturally follow. It was just something that was going to take some time because nobody starts off unless you're, you know, unless you already have an established name, nobody starts off with massive success out of the gate.
0: Okay. So this is me speaking as someone who wrestles with imposter syndrome on a daily basis. And someone who's in therapy to help me with it. (laughs) You know, one of the things that my therapist and I've been working on is taking statements like, uh, I'm a failure as a screenwriter and saying, well, maybe there is another way to look at that. You know, maybe every failed screenplay or every screenplay didn't get picked up is a step in the learning process and you're getting better. There are plenty of entrepreneurs who have done five, six, seven businesses, and they've all failed to get to the eighth one. Are they failures or are they part of the process? Now, having said that, that is hard for me in my intellectual and anxiety-ridden brain sometimes to accept, but you do have to kind of, I think, try to frame it a little bit and understand that everything we do is a process.
2: There's a song by Elton John called Curtains, which is from the Captain Fantastic album that I listen to a lot. It's about a song that didn't work out. They tried, it just ended up not being a song that was releasable or finishable or anything like that. But the way that it's discussed is... Uh, as something to build upon for the future. And it uses a kind of a farming metaphor, Uh, you know, uh, cultivate the freshest flowers this garden ever grew. So yeah, I I try to use that to, I guess, make myself feel better about it and to understand that aspect of it. But like you said, it's, it's still a hard thing in the moment to accept.
0: We talked a little bit about this, but I want to revisit the question. How do you measure success?
2: You know, it's difficult because if you ask me what I consider success to be, if I have moved people, if I've made people feel things going back to that Nicholas Meyer quote, if I can make people do that, then I feel like I've succeeded because of the nature of my show. It's kind of a niche show and it's in several niches actually, because you have it's science fiction, which is a very large one, obviously, but it's a video game story, which limits the audience, Mm -hmm. but it's a romance, which limits the audience even further. And it's a queer romance, which limits it further. So it's difficult to gauge success in terms of download numbers and that kind of thing. That doesn't stop me from trying to do that <laughs> because <laughs> how do you measure that you move people? Right. It, it's much easier to say, well, I want to have 100,000 downloads this season, right? That's something quantifiable. That's That's a quantifiable goal and you can do things to work toward that. But if it's... Something like, well, I want people to be invested in this love story, and when the big emotional event happens in the finale episode, I want a few people to cry. Well, that's hard to quantify.
0: What lessons have you learned about creating audio drama that you can share with people who might want to create their own?
2: It's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's certainly a lot of work to do it right. One thing that I, that I use as an example, and I kept this consistent throughout the season because I didn't want to have a change in tone, certain choices that I made in terms of production. I kept consistent. An example of that is I really only use music with a couple of exceptions later in the season for the opening credits, the closing credits and scene transitions. Now I'm big on music. I love music and how it is used in creative works, whether it's movies, television, Audio dramas, whatever. And I would have loved to throw in some leitmotifs or some incidental music, but I didn't because at the very beginning I thought, okay, these are the things that I know that I can do without overwhelming myself. Right. I think one piece of advice I would give is try to make an assessment of what you feel that you can do at the beginning. Don't overwhelm yourself. Cause I could have gone and said, Yeah, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have like motifs for everybody. I'm gonna use all this (laughs) incidental music, I'm gonna do, you know, all these lofty things. And then two episodes in just going, oh my God. Like, I can't do this anymore. Leaning on people who have done it before is something that I think helps a lot. The podcasting community, both in the audio drama space as well as the discussion podcast space, are very supportive of each other. We are always happy to provide advice, assistance, pointers, whatever. So use that. Get out there and and talk to people.
3: I don't even know why I'm going on like this to someone I just met. People say I'm easy to talk to. I can see that. So, Elizabeth Kirby, unaffiliated, now that you have met the real me, how do I compare to the mythical Odessa Valdez? You're probably disappointed. Oh no, if anything, they didn't do you justice. Oh, now you're just teasing me. I'm being serious.
1: Maybe if I'd spoken to a poet. Oh, saved by the bell. <laughs> uh... <clears throat>
3: Alan, how long have you been standing there?
1: About ten seconds. (laughs) Look, I apologize for interrupting. I can always do another sweep if you need me to. I have every confidence that you did a very thorough job. Scribe Valdez and I can continue our conversation later. I hope we will, at least. Mm. Me
0: too. If you're a fan of post-apocalyptic sci-fi, you won't have to know the Fallout video game universe to appreciate Once Upon a Wasteland. Those that are we'll find plenty of references and easter eggs to enjoy. But the core of this narrative is the relationship between its two protagonists. There's adventure and danger, but it's these two women and their love that propel the story along. You can listen to Once Upon a Wasteland on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories! It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged, not even rayel People ought to know the truth, and I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.